You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Hey, this is David Scales. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. As I walked around the boardroom show in Santa Cruz this weekend, I was really warmed and honored to feel that I wasn't just attending this event. This was my event. It's owned and hosted by Scott Bass, my often co-host of this show. But what I felt was that this is an event for surfers, and I am a surfer. As cheesy as it sounds, I'm part of this tribe. It's also one of Scott's terms, actually. But um, not only does that sound cheesy, but it actually sounds super obvious. I know you're like, yeah, David, you're a surfer. You have a surf podcast. You have 137 episodes where you exclusively talk about surfing. Duh. What's the epiphany? And what I guess I haven't really illustrated here on this show is that I have a hard time accepting and embracing my identity as a surfer. I don't dress like a surfer. I don't speak or I don't think that I speak like a surfer. In fact, I think I make an intentional effort to not speak that way, whatever that way might be. It's partially because I don't identify with the Jeff Spicoli stereotype and I don't want to be associated with that. So I'm glad to distance myself from that lingo and that aloofness that he represents. But it's also because I have a diverse set of interests and I strive for balance in my life and surfing is just one part of my life. But I think more importantly is that I grew up 30 minutes from the beach. So even once I began surfing regularly as a young teenager, I always felt that it was somebody else's beach that I was surfing at. And Matt Parker and I actually touched on this a bit in the episode I did with him because he and I both share this background. But once I started surfing, uh, many of my cohorts in Huntington Beach, they were sponsored, and I presumed largely incorrectly that they lived right on the sand. They lived at the beach. I didn't. This was their beach. I had to spend 10 bucks in gas just to get there. And I was more of a surfer than the kids in my hometown, but not nearly as much of a surfer as the actual surfers, not nearly as good of a surfer as the locals surfing at the pier. This was, of course, entirely in my own head, and I don't think anybody spent more than three seconds assessing whether I was in the tribe or not, and certainly nobody cared either way once they made their assessment. So what I felt at the boardroom show this weekend wasn't just an inclusivity, but it was an ownership and also a pride A lot of that feeling was actually generated by the two dozen or so podcast listeners who approached myself and Scott and introduced themselves as listeners of this very show. Dan, Tim, Cody, Carlos, Ian, Jake, Ryan, Walter, Brandon, and I probably actually shouldn't start naming their names because I can't remember all of them. It doesn't mean that if I don't remember your name, it wasn't important. In fact, it's super important and it was super impactful. And that's why I'm bringing it up on this show. Not only because being appreciated um, for the work involved in producing this show is validating, but 
to hear people say that this show infuses the beneficial qualities of surfing into their life on land or even that it inspires them to actually get in the water and and psychs them up to go surfing all of that not only makes me feel great but it also affirms my identity as a surfer not just as an outsider who comes and sneaks a few waves in but rather as a contributing member of this community who certainly takes my fair share but also has something to give back My insecurity with inclusivity brings me to Sid Abruzzi, the subject of today's show. Do you know Sid Abruzzi? I knew of Sid Abruzzi. And more importantly, growing up, I knew that everyone else knew Sid Abruzzi. From Slater to Curran to Sean Thompson to just the local dudes surfing in Huntington, they knew who Sid Abruzzi was. As long as I've paid attention to surfing... His name has been floating through my awareness. I can't remember specific images from the magazines of him, nor even specific words that were written about him, but he has always been infused in surfing's ether. He was definitely in the tribe, and very likely he was a tribal leader. And while I can't recall specific images of Sid, I knew exactly what he looked like. He's kind of a doppelganger fusion of Robert De Niro and Sean Penn, but with long hair and tattoos. He looks like a badass. He looks like that he's actually lived. If he is a surfer and he represents this tribe, then I'm definitely on the outskirts and just looking in. Um, But over the years, I definitely learned about Sid. And what I learned is that he's an East Coast surfer. He's actually inducted into the East Coast Hall of Fame this year. He's from Newport, Rhode Island, and is responsible for fostering the surfing community there for the past 50 years. Everything that I had heard about Sid was that he was all about inclusivity. The aloha that Duke is famous for spreading in Hawaii and certainly beyond Hawaii, Sid has personified and fully embraced from Newport, Rhode Island. Countless people have undoubtedly discovered surfing because of Sid. He's actively fought legislation to keep beaches open. He's hosted tons of traveling surfers on the East Coast over the years. He's held hundreds of gatherings, a lot of which we'll discuss in today's show. And the entire design of his life has basically just been an open-door policy to newcomers to embrace them into the world of surfing. About two years ago, I began getting Facebook messages from Sid stating just that he was a big fan of the show. I was actually really psyched to receive those. And um, I asked him if he'd come out and be on the show sometime, and he graciously accepted that invitation. But it took about two years. We were separated by 3,000 miles. He's on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. But last month, he came to Southern California uh, just to hang out and check out the Hurley Lowers Pro. So we met on a lay day of that contest, on a Sunday morning actually, at the Zebra House coffee shop in San Clemente. And we recorded this conversation on their patio. You'll hear some ambient noise and traffic going by throughout the conversation. Despite all the wonderful and kind things that I had heard about Sid, his appearance, and I think even his name, Sid Abruzzi, kind of had me a little bit on guard. And our podcast interview was scheduled for the weekend. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but 
we happened, I happened to run into him at an event earlier in the week on a Thursday evening. And I, I immediately recognized him and I just went up and approached him and introduced myself and I was warmly welcomed with the exact same inclusivity that he's established his reputation with for the past 50 years. So I'm honored and proud to be able to introduce you to Newport, Rhode Island's own Citabruzzi. Without further ado, again, I'm David Scales. This is Surf Splendor, and this is my conversation with Sid Abruzzi. Enjoy. Rhode Island as a location That's it. is not what a lot of people associate with surfing. Correct. How did you even get involved in surfing growing up in Rhode Island? What was your exposure to it, your awareness? Well, you know, it's the odd years. I sort of remember, like, the, you know, I don't know. It, I do remember, like, the first time of, of, with all my cousins being in a car and we saw someone surfing at one of the beaches. And uh, I wanted to, I said, I want to do that. And I remember my aunt saying something like, to her son, you'll never do that. It's too dangerous, and it just set me on this thing where, like, man, that looked cool to me. And so, fast forward, you know, I, I was playing sports, and I started surfing probably around 14 years old. My dad bought me like a little fiberglass kill fin thing, and then my dad was a Rogers High School baseball coach, and he got a couple boards from the sporting goods shops that. You know, he got the baseball equipment from the high schools from. So I started out on a, a reef, and then I went to a Duke Quantamoco. They sold them in Sears. Wow. And they sold Greg Knowles surfboards back east in the lumberyard, J.T. O'Connell lumberyard. So that all was the beginning of grabbing surfboards. Um, I remember the big 60s uh, boom on the East Coast where they have a contest with 3,000 people, I mean 300 people in it. And all that said and done, it was all when I was like 14, 15. And then um, when I got around 16 years old and the shortboard revolution sort of happened, all of that faded. And I really wanted a Joel Rowland model, which was made by Rick Surfboards. And I tracked one down. I had, in the meantime, I had got Midget Farley Stringless, Corky Carl Super Minis. For some reason, I was just had it me and my brother we always knew what to get for the most shortest progressive boards at the time and you know we went from midgets to corkies and whatever but i wanted this rick surfboard and they had it at a place ship bottom new jersey called rick surfboard sort of an outlet for the rick surfboards here on the west coast and the ron john shop was next to it anyway so i went down there and i grabbed one and he gave me like four or five boards and this is the summer of 69 and um, I brought them home. I sold them. Next week they came up, brought another eight. So I started selling Rick surfboards at, oh, okay. at 17 years old. I was doing it for what a living. And um, that was like, oh, close to a little less than 50 years ago. And so funny incidents, you know, like I learned about the business the hard way. I started selling so many boards and it wasn't a lot to me, maybe 20, 30, 40 boards and the, the big reputable dealer 
by the name, I'm not, I'll say it, Will Jacob Surf Shop, who had a shop in Hartford, Connecticut, Mesquamacate, and Newport, called up Rick Surfboards and said, um, listen, basically stop selling to this kid and I'll buy 30 boards from here at once. And they stopped selling to me. So they, I get a call from Rick saying, hey, uh, we can't sell you Rick's anymore, but we're going to put a Infinity label on our boards and send them out the back door. And it wasn't the Infinity from Huntington Shit. Beach. It was another Infinity. So long story short, from there, the guy from Rick split up to Overland in Santa Cruz in 1970, and that's where I became a Santa Cruz guy. I found my town. I found wherever the boards I wanted to be and I, I went to Santa Cruz every year every winter I could and so that got me into selling surfboards and then we opened up the Water Brothers which is a little shack uh, for $300 a year a the year rent was 300 bucks a year? a year and uh, all we didn't there what was, year was this? there was this like 71 insane was it w- a deal back then? I mean that's an outrageous yeah, I think deal it was now, a deal <laughs> yeah I think it was a deal but you know, and 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 what happened with the Vietnam War and all of that, and the, and the longboards gone. It wasn't like, oh, dude, if you close, another shop's going to open. It, no, no one cared, right? You know, no one cared. It was just us. We no were in charge of the revolution. We were in charge of the revolution. We were in charge of the music. We were in charge of the skateboarding. We were in charge of the surfing. And so that's why it says Water Brothers Surf Skate Rock and Roll. That's what we did. Yeah. You know, we everybody jammed at night and skated during the no surf things, and we surfed. And, you know, I hate to use the Dogtown Z thing, but, I mean, we had that going without knowing that was going. Sure. You know what I mean? Because... You never got to see anything on TV or anything like that. That's actually what I wanted to ask you, especially about that experience with your aunt driving in the car and seeing a surfer. Right. Like, Revolt. what was your awareness of surfing? Did you guys have magazines out there? Was it on television at the time? or It was on Why World of Sports. Okay. Once a month, maybe, okay. if you're lucky. And mostly it was the Sunset Beach contest, the Duke, the Duke at Sunset. You waited months for that to be on. And then I got into Super 8, where we started taking all of our own movies. And you buy Super 8s, and you, and you just wait for them to come. And you film everybody ripping ruggles and stuff like that. And then we all get together at my house and watch the movies, you know. And Where's that footage now? I got it. I got it all. Really? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a project ready to blow up. I, I mean, so <laughs> contrast that with my experience, right? I grew up in Huntington, basically Southern California, but mainly Huntington Beach, where it's like, Every pro you've ever heard of comes through, sure. certainly for the U.S. Open, but then also throughout the winter and other things just to meet with their sponsors. So it wasn't uncommon to see Tom Curran show up and surf the Caton and right. see him in Newport the next day or whatever, Kelly Slater, uh, which I know is not a common experience. You know, right. I know it's a very right. rare experience, but... Um, for you in Rhode Island, I mean, even still, I think people don't really think of Rhode Island as a surf no, destination. Well, you know, I'll even go back and sitting here where this is uh, Travis Tabling. Mike Tabling is one of my uh, truly inspirations and, and, and mentors uh, in growing up. And Kelly called him at Michael one time the best surfer the East Coast ever produced. And um, Michael came up in 1968 with Nat Young. So there was a, like little ventures, you know. I okay. remember Keith Paul came up. Um, and they'd bring up movies that you'd watch on projectors and stuff like that. And so there was a little bit of pro stuff. And 
it, it'd be a big night. You know, all the boys would get together and we all charge the surf movie. Yeah. That'd be with a projector running, Evolution. So our Evolution at the University of Rhode Island. So the guys who are kind of making a name for themselves as East Coast surfers, they would travel up to Rhode Island? Absolutely. Well, at the time, Michael was riding for Dewey Weber. Okay. So him and Nat made a made a tour. I believe Keith Paul was riding for Bing. So he came up. And um, bits and pieces. And then in 1969, they had what was the 3A, 4A, which would have been pro by now. Okay. But they had like Gary Proper, Mike Tabling, Joe Rowland, uh, Fletcher Shop. Um, all East Coast names came to Newport for a series of contests. Okay. So that's where I saw the Rick model, and that's what wanted me to chase down that model. But we had a, a little bit of a, a pro event come to town maybe once every two years or something Got like that. It. Okay. So pretty, pretty rare. Yeah, rare. Um, what are yeah, that was like once a year too. It wasn't like oh next month here comes the rip curl team. Right, right. Which I would imagine is kind of ideal. I mean, it, you don't want a ton of people coming. No, you know. Time, in fact, right? we weren't discovered to probably 1989 when we were on the cover of ESM magazine with a 20 foot face of Ruggles. Okay. Okay. That that blew it up. Yeah. Like no one came really north of New York. Were you happy to see people coming? I mean, I, I talk- for a while it got tough. Yeah, it's sort of leveled out now. Has it? Because now you see the guys from Jersey realize, hey, it's best to stick here because look at the barrels that you see in, in Jersey. But for a while, every time there's a hurricane, everybody was in Newport trying to get that twenty foot face at Ruggles Avenue, which was sort of like a steamer lane mush peak. Like, come on, give me a break, you know, yeah. and. Um, Explain the landscape up there for people and the the elements. It's it's we surf all year long. It's all little coves and point breaks. Okay. So like a two to three foot swell, one or two small point breaks in the beaches. A six to eight foot swell opens up all these wraparound coves and all these little hideaways, which are good in any wind direction. Okay. Any wind direction. So an eight-foot swell would open up everywhere. In the wintertime, that happens. We get these incredible gales that come off the coast. I always say starting October 15th is our best surf season because when the top of the country's warm, I mean cold, the bottom of the country's still hot, they meet and they giant front lines with thunderstorms, tornadoes that rip through Georgia and everything. You'll start hearing about them in another month or so. And then they pop off Hatteras, and they'll come up and they'll blow 50, 60 knots southeast gales, turn offshore the next day. Mm. So it's not line, 50-yard lines. It's 8-foot, eight 8-foot eight offshore barrels. But So it goes off. And we got beautiful point breaks and um, a couple reefs. Um, for a while, I mean, Brad Gerlach and um, Mike Parsons would come in with the Billabong team. Uh, Mike Mark Haley's got an inside cover at a ledge four miles off the coast from us. So, I mean, we do have a lot of stuff. Ian Walsh is my godson and he pops in, you know, for a swell here and there. And um, So we are a, a place to be. Nova Scotia's taking a lot of a hit now. A lot of people will just jump up there. Mm-hmm. 
and wait instead of coming to Newport. Uh, people have discovered that New Jersey, the next day, the barrels are insane. Yeah. You know, we don't have beach break barrels like New Jersey has. Sure. Our beaches are so soft, it's ridiculous. Okay. Really bad. What's the water temperature like? Right now, it's still 70 degrees, 68 what? to 70. Yeah, people don't believe that. Rhode Island faces south, okay? So the, 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 jet, the Gulf Stream just comes up and hits us right in the face, banks off and goes around Cape Cod. In the wintertime, so I'll break it down into wetsuit weather. Yeah. Um, rashy, short arm, short leg, long arm, short leg. Uh, through the summer, chunks. 3-2, August mornings, nights, until end of November, end of October. Booties, end of October. Thin gloves till Christmas. Four threes. Put on the works yeah. with a cherry on top, yeah. probably around by Christmas. That's what I think of it. Right. Is. Yeah. So at Christmas time, you're once you get in the the front zip, closed shoulder. Don't do any of this stuff. Right. Front zip, closed shoulder, and you get in that. One time we got in that after Thanksgiving. You're in that to May first. Oh, okay. There's, there's no like, oh, dude, April's warming up. I'm going to wear my three two. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah, I would think that alone would keep a lot of people. And there's ice. I mean, if it's flat for a couple weeks, I've seen ice chunks float in and stuff. Really? Yeah, the harbor froze once a year, two years ago. Um, So back to your childhood, pre like seven or selling surfboards and stuff. How much of a? It sounds like you kind of developed the demand for it. I guess those big labels were available in Sears and stuff like that. But it really seems like you were right there helping cultivate the culture as it I think what happened was a lot of uh, the shops that started carrying surfboards in the 60s were like dive shops that just saw kids buying surfboards so they bought surfboards they weren't surfers they weren't surfers there wasn't like Hobie surfboards out there there wasn't Hanson there wasn't GNS there wasn't a Yater or anybody all our boards came from the west coast couple manufacturers in Florida, but they didn't know where we were up. They thought we were part of New York or something. Sure. So I started bringing in boards from the West Coast. And all the other shops closed because they weren't surf shops. Yeah. And um, we were left in charge of our own destiny, I always like to say. And, um, you know, we brought the shortboard revolution to New England. And um, gradually, you know, we got a couple guys up in Hampton Beach, couple guys in Orleans and Cape Cod, couple guys up in Maine, and we all went to ESA contests. A great friend of mine was Dr. Colin Couture, who passed away real early age, and um, he's very instrumental um, in the ESA. He, uh, probably 70, 71, I toured the West Coast with him a couple times, and he was trying to get sponsorships for the ESA. And what Doc was, he was just our regional director for District 1, and then he became the competition director and the head of the ESA for the entire coast, brought the West Coast awareness to the East Coast, and when he passed away, they have a statue of him at Cape, Cape, at, at Cape Hatteras. So wow. I was on the help helping Doc. I got him into surfing, and... Um, you know, we both learned a lot from each other. Well, you mentioned Tom Overland and spending time in I Santa love Tom Cruz. Overland, and yeah. 
Um, were you actually involved in board building at all, or were you just... I, I was just... A, I go in there and do anything I could in the factory. I have so many opportunities to shape, but I just wasn't any good doing that. I just goofed around in my house, but every time I was in Santa Cruz, I was there just riding, and well, I mean, I worked... My job with Tom was to basically maintenance the factory. Got it. Make sure that... Somebody wasn't stealing resin. Right. <laughs> that was like my main job. Sure. <laughs> Seriously. Somebody, was, meaning somebody specific? Yeah. <laughs> Can't say who. Right, of course. So tell me about the Santa Cruz connection then. Because, I mean, I having an awareness of you, I do actually associate you with Santa Cruz. Yeah, absolutely. Not as much as Rhode Island, probably. Right. But, um, yeah, I started going to Santa Cruz and um, through Tom, selling his boards, and went up there and... Um, Met Tom and I just went. It just became. Everybody said, "What are you doing in Santa Cruz in the winter?" And I'm there like, I live in Rhode Island, and, and it's it was the exact same thing to me. It was like really beautiful point breaks and the high cliffs. That's we have high. I mean, cliffs. it sounds the same. It's the same. Just... It's a mini Santa Cruz. Okay. It's a mini Santa Cruz. Okay, and um, so I was right there. I mean, the, the waves are the same to me to ride. Um, you're surfing in three two in boots a lot of times out there. Um, so, as time progressed, I um, I worked for Tom until he basically had to leave the business. Had to be, t- he had to leave Santa Cruz just for, for health reasons. And I and he shared the factory with Doug Howe. So I worked with Doug for about ten years. Oh, okay. With Doug, we started the uh, Lamaflex skateboards because oh. he's the H and NHS. And we brought Kevin Reed and Kevin Nikolai and all those guys to Rhode Island. And Doug came to Rhode Island with me. One time, me and Doug Hout worked at the at the New York Toy Show for Hout Skateboards at the Coliseum. It was nuts. But like, anyway, a, like a trade show? Yeah, it was a toy show. And we had the Hout booth at the toy show at the Coliseum in downtown out, New York. Out of place where you guys? All out of place was the train <laughs> ride back to Newport. But anyway, and, and, and then... Uh, <laughs> So is, was and I brought some team riders, and we had a we had a, a ramp right in Central Park. No way, probably seventy eight. Wow. So was that um, the house shop that you were working in? Is it the same shop? He's exactly. In really? Yeah. So, and I loved Doug. I think it is one of the coolest dudes in the world. And all of a sudden, I think he was sort of like done chasing it. He was done chasing it, and here comes the emergence of Bob Pearson. And we got Rat, we got Flea, we got Skin Dog, we got Barney. And all of a sudden, I asked Doug, I said, hey, you know, I'm, I want to go where the, you know, we're, the we're, team is. We're, yeah, we're doing it. And I, I worked for Bob Pearson for 20 years. For 20 years? Yeah. Selling boards? Yeah. On the East Coast? Board? Yeah. And, and doing trade shows with them. Okay. Very cool. And that was very cool. I mean, it was awesome. And then um, I just got a call from Bob the other day. And um, sort of wants to reconnect and stuff like that. So I worked for Bob for a long time. And then, you know, just being out in Santa Cruz every year, I run into Jeff Rage, who rode M10 surfboards for about five or six years and had a stretch, make me some boards. He's an unbelievable craftsman. Yeah. So I can go to Santa Cruz. It's like home. Yeah. So we're going to brush past a lot of um, time, but we'll come back to it. 
just so that I could focus on the surfboard. You're selling surfboards, obviously. So you you kind of got your foundation in the business doing that, and then that evolved into what became Water Brothers Correct. Surf Shop. Tell me about that evolution a little bit and the shop itself. Well, the shop itself was definitely one of a kind. Um, we opened up a shack from 1971 to 1993. Oh, okay. That was the same Same location. Same location, right on the beach. And then... In the mid-80s, we built a mini ramp, like uh, 16 across, 6 foot high, pool coping, and uh, you can stand on the decks and watch Ruggles to the right, Tuckerman to the left. We're right in the bay, right there. Ruggles there, Tucky's there. And I had the Bones Brigade there in 89, Tony Hawk and the boys. We had the Life's a Beach, Monty Nolder. um, What were they doing there? Skating. Just came to skate the ramp. Uh, well, came for tours. That's when okay. skating was starting to blow up in the late eighties. Got it. So we became the hardcore surf skate thing. Um, everybody came. Everybody, we were right on the beach. It was sort of like wild parking lot. It uh, was a private parking lot. Um, it was sort of like not Venice, but it was pretty wild. I mean, yeah. like the seawall. The seawall and back of the shop was like anybody could you go see anything happen back there that day, and then we made it a vert ramp. Okay. And I told my landlord, uh, it's safer being a little bigger. <laughs> and, then, and we had Christian Asoy, Jason Jesse. Uh, we brought the Bloodshot tour there. Uh, we had Christian Fletcher, Nathan Fletcher, Ray Bones, Rodriguez, Christian Asoy, Jonathan Paskowitz. Kirby Fletcher, all of them came on this. GT from Von Zipper was the lead singer. Uh, they came to town, and we just had a great time. It was the Wild West out there. In the X Games. The X Games, fast forward, what, 15 years from there. Yeah. It was that long, or maybe, you know, maybe six or seven years from there. The X Games come to Newport. We got a phone call saying, hey, you're not going to believe it. And we had moved in 93 up to our location where we were for another 15 or 16 years Um, a more conventional storefront but right on the main strip of the beach and um, we got the call that the X Games were coming to town and we became the the host was Was it the very first? first and second the first and second got it and we were like the the place like hey uh, dude Tony Hawk's gear is being sent to your shop hey so, like, we became the headquarters of the X Games. And I ran they, the first X Games party in my backyard. Did you? Really? We had a helicopter flying. Oh, I, I got, we got everything. Dude, so... Danny do, Way, all the boys. Do you think that they chose that as a location because you guys had developed that kind of core reputation? I don't think we had anything to do with it. Okay. I think it more to ESPN. They were in Bristol, Connecticut. Oh, okay. They were, like, an hour, an hour and a half away. Got it. In fact, a really funny story. The day the X Games came to town, I took the full logo and I made an extreme bullshit T-shirt, right? And it it looked like the X Games, yeah, except sure. said extreme bullshit. Yeah, we're already sort of like over when we found out how bad it was. Really programmed to be, you couldn't sure. do this and that. And um, it's just a little breakaway story. And so a bunch of people, we sold them, you know, not to market them, but we had them. They're all black with the X game stuff on them. And uh, people tried to go into the Fort Adams where the X games were, and they 
weren't allowed with that T-shirt on. Of course not. There were there was a couple incidents at restaurants from the ESP executives that demanded people move, and then about December later on, three or four months later on, I got a guy comes into the shop. He goes, "You see it?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Hey, I'm so and so from ESPN," and I said, "What's up?" And he goes, "You have any of those X?" Extreme Games bullshits, bullshit T-shirts left on there. Like, I sort of felt him out, and he's there. Like, why? He goes, well, listen, we have our the X Games went so good at that at our big dinner. We want to give one to the the top guy in ESPN. So they got, they ended up getting it. Sure, they ended up getting it. And and the second year, it, it came back to Newport without any okay, T-shirt it. problems from us. I wonder if you can find those shirts on eBay. I or got something. one brand new, pal. You? Oh, you yeah. just kept it in the library. Oh, I got it. I'll send you a picture of it. It's awesome. Amazing. It's it. We, we sold the ESPN two logo and the whole bit because it was. It, I don't think they have that station anymore. But sure. one time it was ESPN two. Yeah. So I think that, they have like eight of them now. By yeah, the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I guess I'm always interested, kind of, in the business of surfing and Go the ahead. way that money moves and stuff and uh, obviously retail has shifted a tremendous amount oh it's out of control when your overhead is $300 a year you don't really have to sell a lot of surfboards and skateboards to make ends meet well you gotta understand too there's no no such thing as accessories like there was no board bags leashes we sold surfboards before leashes right there was no leashes there was a t-shirt and a surfboard and we started out wearing diving wetsuits right. with pants and jackets and Bailey wetsuits, dive suits. And it wasn't until like O'Neill and uh, Body Glove. And I was on one of the early guys with O'Neill. I had actual Mike Grassley, rest in peace. New Jersey guy who spent a lot of, probably Pat O'Neill's one of his best friends at the time. Mm. Probably the first rep ever. Oh, really? He repped uh, O'Neill wetsuits and he did his own leashes and he did his own skateboards and he had a couple of Overland models. Michael was a real character. And um, him and Pat came to Newport and I put them up and I put them in the early 70s. And they were at the Newport International Boat Show selling O'Neill wetsuits to try to get the catamaran crew into buying wetsuits. So we saw the ground level of wetsuits progress. We saw yeah. the whole progression of wetsuits. It was impossible to buy a surfing wetsuit for the first five or six years of me surfing. Wow. Yeah, they had jackets and pants and zip jackets. And the water is 38 degrees, 36 degrees. Just getting flushed. It, oh, flush. You, you know, you scream and your mom's turning on turn on the warm water and you just throw your hands out and you're crying I remember my brother one time was just dying but you'd still go yeah you'd still go surf absolutely um, buying weird wax you'd go to the supermarket to buy paraffin right yeah so when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. What were um, what was selling surfboards like back then? Did you get credit terms from guys? Did you just pay well, up surfboards? Front? You could buy awesome Overland. I got all the boards still. They were like ninety dollars wholesale okay. for like a a standard five, ten, six, one. Don't forget the boards were short back then. Yeah. I saw somebody a board from sixty nine that's like this big. They're like, what? I mean it might be the with a big old fan, but yeah. Like Nat Young and those guys sort of were doing it and we were doing it and um, they they went from I'll never forget they went from ninety dollars up to hundred and fifteen. And I used to get boxes of four and eight flown in from the San Francisco airport to the Boston airport. So we used to love going up to the pick up surfboards in Boston. It was like the coolest thing in the world, you know. Picking up a bunch of Overlands today, everyone was all psyched. And so that's what we did, you know. And um, You just pay up front for them, or how did that work? I think Tom held some checks for a while or something. Yeah. It worked out. It was all checked. There was no credit cards back in the day. Right. It was all, you know, checks or, you know, people buy a board. And I, I never made any money on it. We, we'd sell a board we get for $115 for 150 to your friend. Wow. You know what I mean? And so, like, we got the whole town riding the boards and stuff. And and um, you sent the money to Tom, yeah. you know, and he sent you another batch. And the custom airbrushes they did and the individual artwork people wanted or whatever they wanted on the board. And then I started selling boards for Mike Tabling. Yeah. And I sold my tabling surfboards for 20 years. And so Michael had a factory called Creative Shaping out of uh, Merritt Island, Florida, yeah. where he sold uh, his brand, Sean Thompson's. Mm-hmm. He made some Ricky Rasmussen's, mm-hmm. and he made some Jeff Crawford boards. Yeah. And, that was, and Mike used to come up the coast. One of the first guys to come up the coast with boards. Now they all do it. Like WRB will be up the coast. Hey, we're coming next week. You know, they do it to all the shops. Yeah. They really slowed it down a lot because they can't afford to do it anymore. Sure. People used to drop 20 boards on you and see you two months from now. They can't do it anymore. Yeah. Well, I'll fill in some gaps just for the listeners who aren't involved in the board industry or board building. Like, that's how things started. And it's a craft that there's artists producing, you know these finely tuned 
boards that are designed for a specific surfer yeah. oftentimes. For example, not to interrupt, but yeah. Jim Phillips used to pull the pin lines, not the shaper Jim Phillips, the artist Jim Phillips out of Santa Cruz. Oh. He was Overland's guy doing the airbrush and stuff, and now he's one of the most famous guys in the world. Yeah. There's two Jim Phillips. Yeah, but, yeah. But the, the artist Jim Phillips was a long-haired dude like me and in Santa in Overland's shop and you get the craftsmanship of the 70s some of the airbrushes were nuts well so you got guys like that who are passionate just producing this art you know and not really charging adequately for it which I believe $25 right so it's like you I want always, a good airbrush it's going to cost you the board's going to be 175 instead of 150 right yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I always look at that as kind of a detriment to the surf business where it's like you look at how other industries grow, the tech sector or whatever, and they just grow exponentially every year because they're making a lot of money doing it. So that right. motivates people. But it's not really a detriment because we're all buddies and everybody's giving sure. each other bro deals and right. it's core and that's what's kept it cool. Right. But you fast forward compared to what you were doing to now where there are brands who just drop off 50 boards on consignment. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and the boards are produced in... Southeast Asia, Correct. and they're not handcrafted, and right. so it's just a commodity at that point with much more profitability attached to it, but it drives out the Jim Phillips of the world and all it, that sort it of thing. It absolutely does, and you, and you saw it happen. You know, I think it knocked a lot of people off their feet six years ago, eight years ago, and I can look at say the Florida where there is great shapers like Brian Tudor Bat Surfboards uh, AJ Cannibal Surfboards um, on and on and on and on all these guys either had to go to work with somebody else or go do another line of work and make boards on the side yeah. because the the guy who wanted a fun shape was going to buy one of those overseas pop-outs. Right. They weren't getting them from the regular guys anymore. And it destroyed the industry, I think. And, I mean, it was already a thin margin, yeah. you know, that people were working yeah. on. But yeah. then you add that to it, and it's yeah. just unsustainable. Right. You know? It's sort of like that way now. I don't know if I'm hearing things, but I don't want to mention any names. But there's famous companies right now dropping 48 racks of boards at shops. that are just... On consignment. Yeah. Just like... 120 when, days. Right. And if you... And I said, what happens after 120 days? And they said, yeah. Yeah. They're not worried about it. Yeah, they're not worried about but, it. But, I mean, I, I've kind of seen, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this a little bit. What I've seen is, like, those giant brands that are making thousands and thousands of boards a year are the ones that are struggling because there's just this glut of high-performance shortboards on the market. Right. But the guys who are still doing well are the guys who make 300 boards a year. Right. And they're more handcrafted and they do color work. They were making 300 boards ten year, a year 10 years ago, and they're doing it today, right. and they haven't really been hurt. Well, that's what I mean. I think it knocked a lot of people off their feet six or eight years ago. Yeah. But now people are realizing they need to get a better board that way. Right. By getting it from that type of guy. Yeah. That's going to make it for you. So back to your involvement with selling surfboards, as you, know, you transition from the late 90s from that shack on the beach. Right into an actual retail space where there's, right. I'm sure, more significant rent and oh, all that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, 1700 a month. How did that model change for you, and how did your business focus shift well, as we the Well, we had the, the 80s. I mean, we did the skateboarding. 
the sneakers. I mean, the, the skateboarding oh, okay. shoes. Are you kidding me? Like it's full retail then. Full retail. Carrying all the brands. Yeah, pretty much. We were the first store in the Northeast to carry Volcom, first store to carry Lost. So we were like pioneers in that. Always keeping the underground. We never went any mainstream stuff. We we're always like super core. Um, and so that was happening. That was all good. Was that a? In hindsight, was that a? good business decision and was that good oh i think so yeah and then eventually um about seven years ago we went 100 percent water brother signature and the last store the last i mean last brand in the house was bolcom so you just i I just had to call willie up and said hey man i'm just going 100 percent my way And, and you know and you started seeing it when the price of jeans went up to 80 dollars and you get like a couple dozen pair of jeans for fifty dollars wholesale, and you and they're still sitting there after back to school sales are over. You go, what's this business going to? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're getting bombed with emails of everybody selling wholesale direct to people. So it was such a great decision by us to to go Signature Water Brothers, and um, that's the majority of our close sales were anyway. And we had all the pros riding from all the other com- com- uh, companies would come to the store. If they were doing a demo down the street or signing down the street, whether it be Shane Dorian or uh, Dusty Payne, or they come up to Water Brothers and get Water Brothers gear before they go home. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, we They're were like... getting free clothes, but they'll come by, spend money. And they made sure. They, they said to me, like, dude, we want to pay you for these. I yeah. mean, I can't tell you this. And, you know, the same thing, like um, Jeff Armand from Pearl Jam came into the shop and all these guys so you know having that little you know belief in the brand just you know propels you into doing what we do were you still was the um primary profit center of the business still board sales through no surfboard sales eventually um skateboarding went boom it's really bad right now the sneakers started well well it, it could be just different where we are. We're on an island, sort of, and um, right now, without going into things, but the the age group between 14 and 19 aren't doing anything. They're really not surfing. They're not skateboarding. And um, what are the they younger kids, is, I, I don't know what they're doing. They're on their phone. Yeah, yeah. But I am seeing the 8 to 12-year-old kids, like, the, the sons and daughters of the Water Brother, people who are in their 30s and 40s now, that were like, you know, kids coming into the shop in the 80s, their kids are active. So I think the next generation and just being at Trestles and seeing that crew of little guys down there, it's sort of catching up on the East Coast. Where two years ago, there was nobody in that age group surfing or skating. Really? Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. I wonder why. Just in our area. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me what what's the current incarnation of Water Brothers and what's right now. Um, right now we're doing the um, the just the, the home brand situation. I'm doing. I got a really cool setup. Uh, just we we got our site up. We're manufacturing our own clothing. You know our hoodies and all of that stuff. Our tees, our designs, um, either online or you know a phone call but we do an event I'm running a professional surf event October 15th and 16th the Water Brother Pro in Rhode Island and then the dates the 22nd and 23rd 
Um, we run Surfest, the biggest the biggest surfboard show in the world. Yeah, let's talk about Surfest. Quite, How did that come about? Oh man, it came about, and I got I'm going to say his name because he'll yell at me. Uh, a friend of mine by the name of Craig Knowles was the landscaper at Doris Duke's estate, and so he called estate me up on the northeast. Or no, what yeah, Doris estate? Duke has she primarily lived in Newport, Rhode Island. She has oh, her okay. big place in Shangalar and Diamond Head. That's what I remember. But her big place is Newport. She's a Newport. Got American it. Tobacco Harris. Duke University was her dad. Got it. Okay. Um, she was notorious in Newport. Notorious. Notorious for what? Just like the reader life story. It's it's really. I just remember there was a, there was like a a, a, a a chauffeur got killed. And he went to open up the gate. The, she was in the car. The car went forward. And tragic death with him. That's, the, the police chief left town. Doris Duke was never charged. Just, she's a remarkable... They've rumored to be a spy during World War II. And um, so anyway, they called me up because they wanted to celebrate five... One night of... Every Thursday night for five weeks, they wanted to celebrate something in Doris Duke's life. Okay. One of those nights was going to be surf night. So they wanted me to stand in front of her house or in the beautiful house. And that's because she was affiliated with Duke, right? That's yeah, well, the they, surf connection. The, yeah, Sam and Duke. Okay. Everybody thinks she hung out with Duke, but she was more tied up with Sam. Got it. Okay, I, I give you a little more on that, but we'll save it for another time. Sure. But, um, <laughs> but so they, they flew her Velzi over. Okay. Okay, and it was basically a reconstructed Velzy, like somebody fixes up an old Volkswagen. It's not the OG, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. look at it. So I saw the Velzy. I'm there, like, well, listen, I feel kind of awkward uh, just standing here talking about this. How about if I bring a bunch of boards here? And it was nothing ever written on paper. And they go, well, where will you put them? And bam, there's her lawn. It's beautiful, right over at the point, right on the bay, on the ocean, rather. And um, the first year we did uh, 500 surfboards, about 800 people. Were they just all out of your own collection? Uh, I just put a rally out. Okay. And we had we laid them all around, and you know, landscaped them cool, and they had wine and everything. It's really cool. Second year was two nights, a uh, thousand people per night. Probably around 600 surfboards, and it got too big for the house because they were giving away free tours. Their best event ever, but it was too big. The third year was I put 800 surfboards in center court at the International Tennis Hall of Fame, right where all the guys get inducted and everything. I mean, because that was behind the shop property, and they knew us pretty good, so that was a pretty cool event. And then the last two years, we're at Fort Adams State Park, which is the home of the first X Games, home of the Newport International Folk and Jazz Festivals. Okay. Um, my wife, Danielle, um, came in on Surf Fest 3 and took over as just doing one bang-up job, getting the sponsors, the booths, the tents, and... It's a it's a it's a full mission job for her now, and um, Dick Meserol and all the guys come up, and Sonny Miller and Tony Alba and Pete Townend, and I bring all the guys, Rat Boy, Christian Fletcher, Kalani Rob, and they all come, and Travis Tabling and Michael um, 
Mike, his dad, I knew, if I can say it, we're here with Travis Tabling too, and Michael didn't have too much longer to live, and on his bucket list uh, was to come to Surfest, and we rallied about 50 to 60 um, tabling surfboards from the 70s and 80s, and he signed every one of them, and he duplicated an ad he did from the 70s right on the field for everyone. And the year after he passed, Travis came and represented his dad. So it, it surfaced, means a lot to everybody. And then Sonny passed, and um, that was, you know, he stayed at our house. And Tell me about your personal experience as a surfer. Like, I know you've spent time in South Africa. Absolutely. Obviously, you're in Santa Cruz, you're in Rhode Island. What Cocoa Beach. Cocoa Beach. So those things have evolved a lot in the time that you've been around, but... Um, world travel i mean where have you been during that period of time and where um most of my time um was spent um because of travis's dad i went down to Cocoa beach i surfed a lot in coco beach in the winter time that was our uh our poor man's surf trip you know we all get a house down there 75 150 dollars a month and um we all have surf houses, and it seemed like the waves were always good. I don't know why. We are all riding single fins and twin fins in the 70s. And then you go on bigger trips, and um, you go to the Bahamas. I've been to Puerto Rico. And then when Michael moved to South Africa, I went to South Africa in 92 and did countless, endless trips in South Africa where I stayed with Travis and Mike and the family and became best friends with Derek Hine. And uh, through Derek, I, I worked with Derek when we tried to start the Rebel Tour. Uh, we we uh, Derek had this idea to he he was trying to get Kelly when everybody was really peed off at this judging system, and they hadn't started scoring aerials and everything. Derek invited me and flew me to London, and um, we met. Uh, Derek picked me up, and we had two double decker tour buses. We had Shane Veshin, Gavin Veshin, uh, Conan Hayes, some wild kid from San Clemente. Um, Madison or Cremo yes. or something? Justin Madison? Yes, yeah. Justin Madison. Him. He like purple mohawk at the time. He was like a poor boys Fletcher, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, doing pop shavits. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we brought him, brought all these guys. We all met in London. Two double-decker tour buses. Rock and roll band Pico from the Search, lifeguards because we had to be insured, and it was like a virtual reality show. They had cameras on our face the whole time. We all left London, and we took the ferry over into Ireland. And first stop was Bondurin, where we run a local contest, take the winner on the bus, and the pros would go out and surf probably five people watching it sure right and, and then we went up with a million dollars a day budget right and then we went up to Port Rush which is facing north and we did the same thing and then we're supposed to go to England and uh, Dino and Dino who's there and those guys I go visit them in the hotel room we, we you know we, those guys would get a hotel instead of staying on the bus sure but slept 13, double-decker. So what's up? We're not going to England. Well, we got a big swell coming here. We're not going to go to England. So they're like, you guys tell Derek yet? 
No, because I'm Derek's like assistant, right? Yeah. I said, well, we got to tell Derek, guys. And when I left Newport, Rhode Island, it was 15 foot. I mean, it was 15 foot Ruggles. Aaron Chang was in town. Benji Weatherly, Noah Schneider, all the guys were in town. I said, see you guys later. Right? 15 foot, I had to go. We served for a week. The waves are crazy. So I'm over there. And they're right. Here comes a swell. I got Pete Frieden following around. So they meet with Derek and everything. We're not going to England. It's not going to be any waves in Newcastle. We're going to stay here. So they met with the Red Bull people. The Red Bull goes, okay, stay here. They let us stay in Bondura, and they put us up in all these awesome cottages, and the epic swell came in. And so all those guys scored. They got all their footage they want, and they abandoned Derek and me on the tour. And Derek was so bummed. They didn't want to go to England now. So Derek had to bring in a couple like Sam Lemeroy, English pro, Justin stayed on the tour. Conan Hayes was gone, but he was leaving early anyway. But Shane Gavin and Dino left, and we had a four or five other guys, and we had to do ten more cities through England to have ten more surf towns. So we did that, and it ended up from double-decker tour buses, everything, to me and Derek Hines sitting with a rock, scoring the last, the winners of the last two, the last two, every time a kid won the amateur, he got on the bus, so we're in England, and it's down to two guys, and Derek driving around. We, we're Four of us are in this Jeep with a thing. The whole tour is gone. Wow. And I'll never forget me and Derek sitting on this slate ledge, scoring with rock on rock. Crazy. Yeah. And so they ended up uh, giving the kids their free trip to J-Bay and stuff. But, oh, okay. So it was quite an experience, a Red Bull surf safari. We have all of that on film. You got everything on film, dude. Yeah crazy yeah um, so that's that and then I went to Hawaii Volcom flew me to Hawaii and uh, I got to do a, a couple of heats on the Volcom Pipeline Pro um, what do you mean do a couple of heats uh, surf them or no, commentate or? commentate yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, do you still keep in touch with Derek absolutely yeah De- almost weekly really weekly that's rad yeah. he's a fascinating figure to me he's incredible he wrote this um I had a huge piece come out at Surfer's Journal, and uh, like one was like a ten-story feature, and um, he wrote it, and it's still completely misunderstood. Really? Yeah, it's like misunderstood by the readership, or he misunderstood. I don't know. A lot, okay. a lot of people said, "Sid, like, great story, but like, well, I'm practically on stage when Bob Dylan went electric in Newport." You know what I mean? It's like. Wild Wild West and Derek's the best. Yeah, yeah. He just went out there and wrote, and uh, he's one of my best friends. Yeah, we were uh, next door neighbors for six years. You yeah. and Derek? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 In, in South Africa. In yeah. South Africa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I brought him, house. Mike. I brought Mike and Derek together. Yeah. They weren't friendly. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, no. they, they were off and on. They were off and on. <laughs> in fact, the first day I got to South Africa, <laughs> I come in from PE and. Uh, is a box of surfboards in their hallway. They had a beautiful house they built. A surf house. It's one of the most remarkable houses ever. Every window was super tubes right there. And uh, there was a box there. MT walks in, kicks it with his foot. And they go, what did you do that for? He goes, that's Heinz boards. They dropped them <laughs> at my house. And they're like, oh... And I'm there, come on, can we all get along? Because I knew Derek through Rip Curl. I was riding, riding for Rip Curl. And that was the first year Tom Curran came. 
we were surfing the first day that Tom Curran paddled out in that search movie that Sonny Miller took. And that's the most epic footage in the world. It is. So it was me, Mike Tabling, and Kevin Horgan, who uh, bought me a ticket to fly over there. And we're Sonny was here, and we were here. And we had a Travers like this big right next to us. And we had a, a high eight on a tripod, and Sonny was filming. We're the only cameras in the bay. The only cameras in the bay, right? And that night at Rick's bar, I come up and Sonny seen us surfing and filming and surfing and filming. And I didn't know Sonny at all. And Sonny tried to send him a beer. He didn't want to even hear it. Wow. We were like the only other. We were the, who were these guys with? He was the but only guy. But you were the guys. He was coming into your territory, right? Well, he's coming into Michael's territory. Yeah. Sure. You know, and um, I was a Rhode Island boy, you know. I would think that he'd be trying to be friendly with you guys, not... Well, he wasn't friendly at first to me. Like, he looked at us, and I, me and Sonny joke about it now, like, saying, like, what are you going to do with that footage? You know, because he had exclusive. When I tell you, there wasn't one camera being yeah. shot of Tom Curran surfing the first day out, except for Sonny Miller and us. Right. And because he showed up with Tom, he yeah. figured it's his exclusivity. Yeah. 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 I just rewatched that footage the other day. It's unbelievable. It's, it's oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So was that your first introduction to Tom then? Yeah. And had you um did you have an awareness of him? Did you oh, know absolutely. who he was? Oh, yeah, completely. you followed his career and stuff. Yeah, that was yeah. huge. In fact, his I had come in and I changed out of my wetsuit and I grabbed the Water Brother shirt and I ran down the hill and Tom was coming out at Supers in front of Mike's house. Impossibles, and I hand him a Warner Brothers shirt, you know, and he's like, Thanks, yeah. you know, Cloudy, J Bay. And um, I was with, spent just probably a, three hours with Tom two nights ago, Thursday night, and um, I see him almost a lot, but that was really good seeing him. Does he spend time out in Rhode Island ever? Yeah, I brought him back jamming three times. Oh, okay. He played. To play. He knows about Boston, too. I mean, he's going to be like, Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he just came up on tours. Okay. You know, when he was a little more involved in the 90s, came up with Pico, came up with Arno when he worked with those guys, and came up with this band that he had the other night, and we get him a venue, you know, hey, I'm coming up, blah, da, 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 da. We get him a club, they keep the door, whatever it is, something like that. Um, back real quickly to that session in South Africa at J Bay. Do you remember the footage that I we're I remember familiar? everything. It was Frankie. Frankie, Frankie Overholzer? Yeah. Overholzer. Unbelievable. Um, so the wave that we've all seen, the video, Sonny's footage of, the very first wave he surfed at J-Bay, did you see that wave live? Were you in the water? Were you on the beach? Tell I was in, either in the water or on the beach okay. filming. We're in and out. Okay. I was out the whole session, though. I mean, was your mind blown? It was mind blowing. It, it was, that was his first ride. I know. It's insane. You know, and the town knew he was coming because I think he was the current world champ. Oh, okay. I think he really was because I think there was a headline in the in the, in the the paper. I remember nobody surfed like Tom Curran. Nobody yeah, in the no world. Word. Anybody in history, nobody surfed like Tom Curran. Yeah. At, at that point. Well, yeah. it's, I mean. Frankie had it going, too. But no one surfed guy. like, yeah. yeah. Well, where is he? He's shaping boards there. Okay. And his son's trying to get on it like the junior tour right now. I mean, I didn't see a lot of him growing up, but in the, the search films, he'd always have a few waves, and I thought he was unbelievable. Yeah, Frankie's yeah, unbelievable. In J-Bay every year. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, just real quick, like, 
I get home, I leave when the tour, every year I left just before the tour because Kelly would stay at their house. And um, I left, and um, one year, two weeks later, two weeks later, me and Tom had just the t shirt and hey, how you doing? Sure. Two weeks later, he's standing next to my bird ramp on the beach at Water Bros looking at me going, like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, we're, like Hold it. Didn't I see like an Africa a month ago? I said, yeah, how you doing? He was with Frankie. Oh, okay. And they were on the Rip Curl Search tour, the Got East it. Coast tour. And uh, they just became best friends. So it's, what, 25 years? Well, so... 25 years of being a great friend. The other night, hearing Morris talk a little bit about Tom, yes. one of the things that he was saying was like, he's like, I've seen Tom surf... Like, even when he was winning world titles, we'd go free surf, and he would surf 10 times better than he would in contests. Like, okay. I saw him surf in ways that blew my mind. And then he'd go out in the heat, and he'd surf one-tenth that he did as good as he did free surfing, and he'd still wax everybody. Right. And what I think is rad about Tom is, like, I was trying to explain it to somebody who doesn't surf the other day, and it's like... John John Florence can't surf a wave without being, it being documented nowadays. Right. Right? He's got a team of filmers, a team of photographers, sponsors right. who need that footage because they're right. paying him four million bucks a year. So it's like he can't surf undocumented. 99% of Tom's waves that he ever caught in his life, still Absolutely. to this day, go undocumented. He surfed six to eight foot Ruggles Avenue, summertime, on a friend of mine's twin fin that he borrowed. Yeah. And you killed it. Nobody's ever seen it. No one's ever you seen witnessed it. it but and that's my buddies it. to this day loves the board. Tom wrote this board. Yeah, that's the magic of Tom. Yeah. You yeah. know, and and again, even the the ninety nine percent that we've never seen is better than the one percent that we have seen. Absolutely. You know, like that one wave at J Bay. Dude, he probably got dozens of others that might be better than that. We just right. never are going to see right. it. Right. Speaking of documenting, it's actually a perfect segue. You've got all this footage, all yes. this archival footage. Right. I mean, what are we doing with it, dude? Well, Let's do uh, you, something. You know, it's it's called. Um, I feel sometimes like a fish that got hooked. I've had four or five fairly major try to. I don't want to say deals, but guys who were going to make a documentary. You agree with them. They've even mic'd me up and had me walk around Doris Dukes. They've done countless interviews with Jason Jesse, with all my surf guys that come to the tour, with Ian Walsh, my godson. And then they just fade on to other projects. So it's it's sort of like one guy held us out for two years. Like they catch you on the line, they put you over on the side. You're next after I finish my next film. We're going right. to get your film. And so we're... You know, we're always in talks yeah. with people about it, and um, I literally have the history of skateboarding and, and surfing on shortboard on film. If all the Northeast, and then all my high eight stuff from around the world, and my Jeffrey stuff, and my Ireland stuff, and all of that, so we can do a good thing along with the just the history of Water Brothers, and then throw in the the music aspect of it like we, we haven't even touched on that no like we just started playing out of our basement for fun you know and we just me and my brother and stuff and um i just thought it like my brother would really was the guitarist and practice and 
be really good and and we just played this one party and you know the next thing you know we're opening up for Iggy Pop and we're opening up for Johnny Thunders and Gang War and all of that stuff and we did two five-year runs and from 1979 to 1984 he's just playing around uh Providence in Boston and stuff okay. like that. All original music. What's the name of the band? It was Big World. Big World. That's and, right. and then um, fast forward 20 years later in 202, we decided to get back together. And at this time, with our, you know, we're known in the surf skate industry. So, you know, we got on the uh, electric Save the Dolphins album. We put out two CDs. We're on a bunch of us golden Years we got three songs on Golden Years that California Surf stuff. Yeah. Volcom put us on the Warp Tour for a couple shows. Okay. Volcom brought us down to Florida um, for Surf Expo time. Yep. And then we played Skatopia for a couple times, which crazy. was like crazy. And so we just chucked it. We did it all for fun. How? Yeah. Okay. So um, did you guys actually release albums and all yeah, that? Yeah, we got two killer albums. Okay. Yeah. Got it. I'll, I'll count to you. They're awesome. Yeah, I hate uh, to tell you, they are awesome. Awesome. Uh, what about how? Tell me the story of opening for Iggy Pop. How did that happen? And did you get to spend time with him? And we tried to. Okay. <laughs> tried to. It's so bad. And like we opened up for Iggy twice. Okay. Where was it? Uh, we played one time in East Providence, which is sort of like Providence, and another time in Providence. So he was coming to town, and he wants a local act to like. Well, the promoter liked us. Okay. We played for Iggy Pop, The Tubes, Boingo Boingo, uh, RuPaul Slim and the Sex Change Band, Joan Jett. We had this one guy who liked us, you know, because we were different. Like, we weren't like the Providence City Band with an attitude like, hey, let's go, guys. It's, you know, and, and um, surf skate guys. But we weren't like the surf punks. Right. You know, we were like, you know, a real rock band that, you know, sing along catchy stuff and good rhythms and so they liked us and uh so we had us open up for Iggy and we did our sound check and Iggy wasn't at the sound check you know he left we see him leave the things and then we finish our set and everybody's yelling for Iggy anyway we finish our set and here comes Iggy and his entourage in and um so he didn't even see our set Mm. So he went down, and we got a couple things signed from him and stuff like that. And this was, like, late 70s, early 80s. Both times. Okay. Both times. We didn't play with them in post-modern times. Sure. This was, like, the early revolution punk times we played yeah. with Iggy. Uh, Johnny Thunders, that guy was a, a mess. We played with them. <laughs> we're the, we're the, they let us play with Johnny Thunders of the New York Dolls all the time because we were dumb enough to let us use their equipment. Uh, we kept our back line up. You know, they used to, and yeah. I mean, he had like guys with dog collars on from New York, and they would come in, get their thousand dollars, play, and leave at midnight that night, you yeah. know, and just right, right in front of you, like yeah. bad news. And they they were trying to steal your drumsticks, like, dude, crazy. And so, like, we're the only band that we let them do that, right? <laughs> so, that was fun, though. Um, another thing, I mean, we've kind of infused, or I think just by nature of telling your story, a lot of it has to do with the community in Rhode Island. Absolutely. Obviously, and even that musical 
segue in your life was because of your your uh, you being such an integral part of the community when they come right. to play, yeah. they want to use you guys or work, play with you guys. Can you talk about? I know that you were instrumental in um, legalizing surfing. Yeah. Yeah. Was it at Ruggles? Yeah. Well, well, what happened was um, I'll go right at it. It's like a real community effort. Well, at the time it wasn't. Um, in the early '60s, um, in the early '60s. The story is there was a guy longboarding at Ruggles, and hardly anybody surfed Ruggles. And there was a fisherman fishing at Ruggles. And they tangled, and they got yelling at each other. So I can imagine the guy was just riding like a knee-high wave, which was breaking real close to the rocks anyway. So Literally tangled? Like tangled in his line? Or? Well, the guy ended up being the police chief, which the guy? fisherman. The fisherman. Okay. So he went to the city council, and they put a ban on surfing from the corner of First Beach all the way to Castle Hill, which is called Ocean Drive, which would be like, say, in Santa Cruz, it'd be like no surfing from a Santa Cruz Pier to Natural Bridges. Crazy. Yeah. So all the good spots, too. Yeah, well, Ruggles and a couple other spots. Yeah. But that, that whole, you couldn't do that. You just surf at the beach. So 14, 15, 16, we're surfing all the time there. The, the guys who had the, the manager of the estate would see our cars down there, call the police. Police would stand on the cliff, blow the whistles, you come in, blow the whistles, come in. So as soon as we Take got our... you or something? Or? No, they just threw you out. Got it. Um, so when you got your cars, we were there more and more often now because we were driving. And so I just decided to stay on the water. This, this, we got to end this. So I stayed in the water until it got to like the boiling point. There's maybe five cop cars up there. I remember that. And uh, I come in and I actually got arrested. And I was given a court date. And when I arrived in court, district court, my attorney was taken off the case by his law firm that was being represented by all the estates on the cliff. And I was given a public defender. My dad was thrown out of court. And I was fined $10. Okay? In the meantime, all the surfers tried to do a little rally. There's pictures of us in City Hall to legalize it through the ordinance pending my appeal to Superior Court. And uh, the City Council said, we're going to wait for the decision on a bruisee in Superior Court. And if I was found guilty in Superior Court, there'd be no surf. I was found innocent in Superior Court. Okay. December 13, 1973 or something. We celebrated it a couple of years ago, 40 years of it. So Ruggles was legal. Since that day, no instance at all. Okay. Fast forward, Hurricane Sandy. Around November, December, somebody came to me and said, Sid, there could be something going on starting the spring of next year. This is post-Sandy. The guy was in the Coastal Resource Management. He was an engineer. Because I'll keep you informed. So I got uh, you know. So what happened was about, sure as heck, April. Sid, where are you? I said, I'm on my way to the Water Brothers. He goes, well, can you meet me there in 10 minutes? I'll be right there. And the guy walked in, and he laid these plans out. And they, you can still find them online. And it was a big Armorstone jetty 
in front of the main break. It was two 200 foot plus. They didn't give you the final t- 40 foot wide jetties going out where they were going to put barges on the end of them to bring in to drop the armor stone and then quote maybe take them down. There were would be no different than right in the middle of trestles, right at center peak, and then the other one at middle. So it was crazy. And then then the armor stone in front of the break itself would make it virtual high tide and mid tide. It was just destruction and um, we saw it a grassroots effort and um, what was their objective to stop coastal erosion or yeah like but it was it? ridiculous the whole state of Rhode Island on the other side the storm had it easily fetched I mean Mesquamic hit Narragansett was destroyed we had minimum damage there you know and there's a lot of uh, connections they, they didn't have to go through anybody they awarded 12 million dollars to the Cardi construction people they had proofs approved it was supposed to start in may and we just kept going grassroots growing every two weeks my wife said it was incredible two weeks tv stations in the shop every day every day not us calling they're coming to us radio shows us on scott's show at, uh, down in san diego Surfline picked it up i mean it was huge and finally they met with everybody and as we say, instead of putting a body cast on this thing, let's just do a Band-Aid. And that's all it took. Ruggles wasn't the issue there, you know. They they had... It's really a little complicated. This guy built a $12 million estate from an old estate at Ruggles, brought up the landscape about six or eight foot of fill, so when you walk the path of Cliff Walk, a stair at Cliff Walk, you can't see his property. Sure. That was causing the erosion on the on the sidewalk. So the Army Corps engineers guy walked with me and said, "Well, the sidewalk's collapsing because of this guy's got the drains from his yard going on the sidewalk. It's not from the seawall. Yeah, just just throw a patch on the seawall. There's nothing. Ruggles was like that 60 years ago when I started go surfing there. So they listened to us and they fixed it." Um, all sorts of like little sidebar stories with that. The members of the Cliff Walk Commission uh, wanted it done. It would erect. Uh, we had marine biologists come on saying it would ruin everything. And you, you walk around Ruggles and you're looking at a chatty instead of a natural cliff right. formation. It's horrible. Right. Meanwhile, the rest of Rhode Island's falling apart. And sure. Care, just because it's protecting this one guy's mansion. Right. So you guys blocked the We blocked it. Good. Awesome. Congrats. So that's two victories or bundles. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean, I would imagine Newport as a, the community that doesn't even surf probably has a lot of respect. A lot of people did. A lot of people like, yeah, uh, I'm I'm serious because it, it kept the natural look of the cliff. But I mean, also like the surf and skate culture gets a bad rap oftentimes and it's like yeah. the local community looks at them as hooligans you know but i would it seems like you guys have done done a lot of good yeah you know it's you know obviously every decade changes a little bit the wild 60s became the wild 70s a little bit in the 80s 90s but you know it's all pretty trimmed up mainstream yeah it's doing good you know what i mean yeah. like it's a healthy 
healthy environment to be down the beach. It's a healthy environment to go skateboarding. Exactly. You know, it's not like, oh, man, don't go down there. You know, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. There's none of that vibe, you know. A uh, couple of kind of wrap-up questions. Um, what are your thoughts on this world? You Obviously, you're in Southern California. You've been down at the Trestles event. What Every are your day, thoughts on all the day. world title race? What do you want to see? Who do you want to see? Who are you rooting for? Well, obviously, Kelly. <laughs> um, he's got to get past round five. Do you know who he has in round five? Yes, he has. Um, oh, why don't I know that? I knew it this morning. Uh, I looked at it, too. I just can't remember. I just can't remember. No biggie. Yeah, I want Kelly. Yeah. Got to have Kelly. Yeah. You know what? And at first, I wasn't a Gabrielle fan, but... That kid put so much heart in it, you know, whether it's in the right direction or the wrong direction, but I think he got ripped off yesterday. Against Tanner? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do. Totally. Um, I overheard um, just say this. I was talking to Gabriel's stepdad and a very famous person on the World Surf League who does side documentaries, you know, who I'm talking about said, hey, can I interrupt for a second? He goes, I have Kelly on uh, tape saying that Gabriel's score was one of the most ripped-off scores of the year. So, yeah. you know, it didn't do any good complaining, but... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge fan of the World Surf League. Um, I just find it exciting. You know, when it's on, i got to watch it. You me know too. what I mean? It's, it's incredible. Great. Is that why you're out here, or what was the Yeah, I came out for this. Just to watch the... Yeah, I really did. You That's know, right. I, I was overdue. Yeah. I got married to my lovely wife, Danielle. Hello. Four years ago. Three years ago. Three and a half years ago. And um, she had come next trip, but she gave me the green light to come Sweet. to the tour. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, obviously... One of the final questions we always ask everybody is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? Right now, um, I'm riding a, a 6-1 Cannibal Corvac board. He's making them out of vacuum bags. Oh, okay. Yeah, he can shape epoxy, and he does like five or six layers on the top, four on the bottom of cloth, and he puts them in a vacuum bag, sort of like the boat industry does, and they suck them out for like 12 or 14 hours. And it makes like a shell. I don't want to say like a surf techie shell, but it makes a, a shell, and they're they're light and they're strong and they're pretty cool. Are they like stringered or does it have a stringer? Mine in doesn't it? have a stringer. No, he only puts the stringers. He said after eight foot. Okay, that was what AJ did. That was another friend of mine that again the industry almost ruined with the mask boards, and so he went into what a lot of guys did. They went into better construction. Yeah. Better design. Yeah. And that saved him. He went into using um, the vacuum bag process of glassing surfboards. And you said it's a 6-1? Yeah, I got it in the car. Like a tri-fin? It's a thruster. Shortboard? It's yeah. a thruster. Rad. Sort of a little old man shortboard, but okay. it's not It's not that old man shortboard. I was going to say, dude, it's still a 6-1. <laughs> it yeah. can't be that much yeah, fun. Like, and I still got my M10s and my Pearson Arrows. I have a collection of about 150 surfboards. Do you? Yeah, and ones that I rode, probably about 60. And ones that I probably, I don't know, man, me and my brother used to, my dad didn't know what was wrong with us. 
especially when the boards went from nine foot to seven foot. Nat Young said something once. A great friend of Michael's said, "By the time they put out the the doobie, the boards went from nine foot to seven foot." Yeah, yeah, and and and. Uh, I remember my dad, we begged for this midget Farrelly Stringless 9.6, and then all of a sudden, like a week later, I got to get the 7.4. Yeah. And he's here, like, he's a baseball coach, professional athlete, going, like, what is it? What's going on here? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's so many stories that you have, and especially just that. I love stories about like surf community that develops right. in these small gotcha. areas around the world these little pockets there's always there's like a plethora of stories I'm sure that come well, out we didn't even there. touch Skater Island no it's another I walked into this really quick I walked into this we closed the sh- when we moved our shop and there was no more ramp next to the shop I felt obligated to keep the kids skating and the, even the bird guy skating and I walked into a warehouse with no money, 30,000 square warehouse with no money, not a penny to my name. And some guy said, hey, what are you doing in here? I said, who owns this place? And next day I met the realtor of the place. And I said, listen, I got this wild idea of doing a skate park in here. I got a couple of people who might be interested in backing it. And he said, well, we're not going to do nothing with this for a couple of weeks. Beautiful sprinkler system. Cement floor, perfect. No beams, thirty foot side. Long story short, two people come in with me. I become a third owner of it. You know they, and uh, fast forward, we're in Tony Hawk's PlayStation Three. Really? Yeah. Fast forward, we're in Tony Hawk's PlayStation Three. NBC launches the Gravity Games in Providence, sort of their counter thing to the Extreme Games. It rained a couple days. Boom! Everybody's in the park. I've known Tony since the 80s when he skated my little ramp. Yeah. He came in and loved the park so much, he filmed the whole thing and he made it a destination point on Tony Hawk PlayStation What's it called in the game? Skater Island. Skater Island. Yeah, it's a a place you can go ride. Yeah. And then just, uh, you know, everything doesn't work out with partners and I walked out. Okay. And the park closed a year later. Oh, okay. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, so like there's all these stories and obviously it's um, all surf skate rock and roll related. Yeah, true. <laughs> Which is even better, you yeah. know? But like and you've got footage of all of it. Yeah. Obviously I just want I just want the stories to be documented. I want yeah. to hear the stories. So that's part of the effort with the podcast is yeah. like I love dude, the let's podcast. just touch on I can't We'll get stay in touch depth, all the time. We got the this. big secret for next summer. All right, yeah. Listeners don't know. We had yeah. to cut the mics for a minute or two to get the big secret, but there's more to come. Um, so, yeah, dude, I'm glad to get some of it on on tape, and it's like, again, I know we haven't even touched the surface of a lot of it, and where do you even start, you know? Yeah. But I'm glad to connect and get some of the stories. Is there anything else that you want to share or promote or talk about? Um, Direct listeners to? No, I just want to keep, you know, I think everything, I just want to say hello to my family out there and all my friends and everyone who supported us. Um, you know, we're, we're, it's, we're sort of like, it's weird how we, we're underground, I guess, and a lot of people like it being underground and, and not above the, in the mainstream things that support from Surf Plunder and stuff like that keeps, keeps it going. It makes a big difference. 
it's a it's a touchy balance to maintain where you're like underground enough to right. be cool, right? Or to be respected by the core, right? And that depends but, how you play it, though. It does totally. I mean, we walked by two. I'm not going to say who, but we walked by two surf pros today. One an '80s pro and who's carrying a camera behind the a new pro at San Clemente Pier, and they they give you a little. Like that, I mean, like a grunt. Yeah, keeping it core is one thing, but then you also have to be large enough and do it on a large enough scale to where you can be profitable. You know, so it's like, well, I'm not profitable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you don't have to then. (laughs) But we're working on that. That's why. That's marketable. Maybe. When I say say you have to, what I mean is, (laughs) ideally. You want to be able to do it for the long term. Well, yeah. You know, and it's like, how do you manage that balance? Because um, once you... I've been running since 69, but it's time to get a little more serious, I think. Yeah, I think think no matter what happens, (laughs) this is going to be around forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do you guys have... um, Do you want to direct listeners to... Yeah, we got original uh, waterbrothers.com. If you'd like to reach out to... uh, our email it's original water brothers at gmail either attention sid or danielle i have the world's oldest coolest daily surf report still done daily with a machine and you just dial 401-848-WAVE-9283 and every morning i look at the waves go back to my house push the button <laughs> thanks call water brother surf report knee high forget about it who's doing it now while you're out here well i said that i'm going out here so it, it's actually on a little break you should just give him a report from trestles instead <laughs> yeah, i know that I've, I've i've had the report's been so outrageous during some of our crazier times that yeah, yeah. people used to call it just to call it yeah yeah just to dude i call you surf report every day and i don't even surf just to oh, yeah, thanks that's funny you know thanks gee that's great Char- yeah too bad you can't charge for it yeah yeah I, I thought of that but that wouldn't be right that's no. how people would stop not liking you yeah totally you know like hey this guy's still doing it for nothing right we must like him that's, that's how the podcast is based. Yeah. Famous for all the best reasons. All right, well, right on. Okay, thanks, man. it's a pleasure, dude. Seriously, Alrighty. yeah, thanks. Cheers. OriginalWaterBrothers.com is Sid's website. You can link to it from SurfSplendorPodcast.com, where I actually have links to everything that we discussed in this episode, including photographs of the famed point breaks in Rhode Island. You wouldn't believe how good the waves are, how good they look in photos anyways. So, uh, man, I am super inspired to do a trip out there and Hang with Sid, take advantage of that connection. 
super psyched to make that connection, Sid. Thank you so much for participating in this show. It's really good to connect with you. Thank you, listener, for tuning into this show. Share it with friends. Leave a comment on today's show page, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then, of course, follow us on social media at surfsplendor. So I will sign off by saying this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, encouraging you to get back in the ocean, get a couple waves, and shred on. I'm